0: Acts 4, 5 through 12. The next day the leaders, elders, and legal experts gathered in Jerusalem, along with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others from the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and asked, By what power or in what name did you do this? Then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answered, Leaders of the people and elders— Are we being examined today because something good was done for a sick person, a good deed that healed him? If so, then you and all the people of Israel need to know that this man stands healthy before you because of the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected he has become the cornerstone. Salvation can be found in no one else throughout the whole world. No other name has been given among humans through which we must be saved. Amen. Thanks, Tom and Vicki. If you will turn also this morning to the Gospel of John, to the 10th chapter the gospel reading this morning is from John 10, beginning at verse 11. If you're with us this morning and if you're able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's Word as we read John 10, through 18. Jesus is speaking and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When the hired hand sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and runs away. That's because he isn't the shepherd. The sheep aren't really his. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. He's only a hired hand, and the sheep don't matter to him. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I give up my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that don't belong to this sheep pen. I must lead them to. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me. I give up my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I give it up because I want to. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it up again, for I received this commandment from my Father. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this may be um, a dangerous thing to say this morning, especially, especially since I'm about three weeks out from having with the church board my six-year review. Um, so if I'm not here in a few weeks, that meeting didn't go well. Um, but this may be a dangerous thing to say in light of that review coming up. But but I've given up on trying to make college church a great church. And not only that, but I've decided to stop trying to be a great pastor. Now, before you shout, mission accomplished, pastor, uh, <laughs> let me explain why I'm giving up on greatness and why my giving up on greatness is actually rooted in these two texts before us this morning. If you have your Bible open, I'd invite you to, to look with me at Acts 4, but also at John 10 today. These two texts are, are rooted in, in three common themes. They're connected with each other because they arise, first of all, out of conflicts. They arise out of conflicts in healing. Um, if, you're, if you have John 10 in front of you, you can look back a chapter. And notice that the whole chapter 9 of John deals with a conflict that ensues because Jesus healed a blind man. And this upset the religious leaders and they quiz the, this blind man who's been healed. In fact, they're not happy with his answer so they pull his parents in and ask them questions <laughs> about whether he was really blind from birth and so on. And this whole upheaval of this life that is beginning to be made manifest in Jesus is upsetting all the status quo. And so this text, John chapter 10, actually comes in response to conflict. In Acts 4 also, I think this is at least our third week, maybe our fourth week, in this same section of Scripture where, where Peter and John head to the temple, and they see that disabled man who is sitting by the gate beautiful, and they, they don't have any money to give him, but they heal him in the name of Jesus. And he goes skipping into the temple. And again, it creates all of this tension, especially with the Sadducees, as we'll see. And so both are rooted in the upset of the status quo, the frustration of religious leaders for for the ways in which what Jesus is bringing um, brings a kind of newness that brings a form of instability, especially for those of us who like things the way they are. Likewise, both texts are critiques of religious leaders. That both in the case of Jesus and in the case of Peter and John, you can't read those texts without understanding them as a kind of critique of the way God's people are being led and the character of the people who are leading them and the imagination that those leaders have as they are leading those people. For somehow the way they are leading is not the way that God intends them to be led, or it is not the imagination with which God intends His people to live and to function. But most importantly this morning, both texts are rooted in the idea of goodness, of goodness. That Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We'll think about that a little bit more in just a moment. Peter says, I can't believe how upset you are because this goodness happened in this man's life. That there is a goodness at work in him that has made you frustrated and upset. They're both rooted in goodness. As we think about the John text this morning, there are a couple of Old Testament texts that we have to keep in mind as we read John 10. Um, Forgive me, this will shock you. One of them is Exodus. Um, Way back in Exodus, the third chapter, when when Moses is standing barefoot before the burning bush and God is saying, hey, I need you to go back to Egypt and I need you to go get those enslaved people that you belong to, and that are my people, and I need you to bring them out of Egypt. Moses says, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. But if I go, there's lots of gods in the world. And when I tell them God has sent me, they're going to ask, which one? So who do I say has sent me? And it's there where we get that amazing name, that sacred name of God, that That causes in the Old Testament, whatever translation you have this morning, you will see over and over again the word Lord capitalized. It's because it's that name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. A name that in English, Hebrew, um, in Hebrew, vowels were added later. And so Hebrew is mostly a a language of consonants. And and when we take those consonants and we translate them into English, we either get one of two things. We get YHWH or we get JHVH. And if we get Y-H-W-H and we put vowels in, we get Yahweh. And if we get J-H-V-H and we put vowels in, we get Jehovah. It is that name of God, but it is better translated as I am. I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I I am the God who is with you. I am the God before all things. I am the God of the present and the future and the past. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And so this Johannine text is actually the fourth of seven times where Jesus talks about being the I am. And scholars recognize that in this language, there's this resonance all the way back to the burning bush where Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, right before this, I am the gate to the sheep pen. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. But here, I am, I am the good shepherd. It's powerful. You're not excited about this yet, but get excited. It's kind of powerful. that in, the, in John's gospel, Jesus is not just speaking about himself, but speaking about the ways he is connected to the God who is eternal and always and at work in the world. He is the I am. But what is the I am like? The I am is like a good shepherd. This is how God operates in the world. The other Old Testament text that's really critical, and I would encourage you to read it sometime this week, is actually in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34. In fact, if you look it up, um, you'll notice it's connected because uh, if you have a translation that puts headlines above the text, the headline will be, The Good Shepherd. And Ezekiel 34 is this lament of Ezekiel where Ezekiel looks around and sees the people headed into exile, going into exile, and he laments this. The reason we're going into exile is largely because the leaders of God's people have led us astray. That when God brought us out of the wilderness, he wanted us to be a particular kind of people, and because we have to be this particular kind of people, then we have to be led in a particular kind of way. But those leaders, rather than leading us in the way that God wanted them to lead us, led us in ways that reflected kind of the leaders in the world to use my kind of language, our leaders ended up wanting to be more like Pharaoh than they wanted to be like David, or they wanted to be like what God intended them to be. They wanted the kind of life that they have seen embodied in these leaders like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. They, They haven't wanted the kind of life that God wanted God's people to lead with. And so we're falling into exile because we've We've dreamed the wrong dreams. We've been led in the wrong ways. We have been captured by the wrong imaginations, and especially our leaders have been captured by those imaginations, and then we've headed down the wrong road, and now we're falling into exile. But Ezekiel, in the midst of this lament, says, but God, God will not give up on us. God will bring about a good shepherd. By the way, I wanted to show it this week But I don't know if you, um, I don't know if you have seen this video that's been circulating around the internet. In some ways, ripe for today, Good Shepherd Sunday. But there's a video of, of a shepherd trying to rescue a sheep out of a kind of ditch. And the ditch is just big enough for the sheep to fit in. And so it's kind of wedged in there and stuck. And so the shepherd's just kind of working, grabbing the sheep's leg and pulling the sheep out, trying to get. And finally, you can almost hear that as it comes out of the ditch, right? Pops it right out of the ditch. And the sheep is so excited to be out of this. He puts it down. The sheep kind of dances around, takes two jumps, and boom, right back in the ditch. Right, Like stuck back in the ditch. Ezekiel has this kind of view. This is how God is patient with us. The God is a good shepherd. And God will not give up on us. And God will bring a good shepherd. And so here's the radicalness of John 10. Jesus is saying, hey, I am, bing, 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 I am, I am. Connected to the great I am. But he's also saying, you remember Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel's hopes that there would be a good shepherd that would lead us? I am that good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The one who will lead the people the way that God intends God's people to be led. So if we think about that, there are a couple of characteristics, if you have John 10 still open, there are a couple of characteristics that Jesus points out that is critical for the good shepherd. That the first is that the good shepherd, the one who is, and by the way, I love the Hebrew word tov. The Hebrew word tov is the word for good. Um, tov shows up in the creation narrative. As God creates things, he says, Ooh, that was tov. Ooh, that was tov, tov. That was really tov. That was good. That was super good. But the goodness of the shepherd flows in this kind of way. That the shepherd is good, first of all, because the shepherd lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. The shepherd is not so much concerned about the well-being of the shepherd as much as the shepherd is concerned about the well-being of the sheep. Sometimes, um, especially coming out of the Lenten season, where we're confronted at the cross with the ways in which we so often misuse power, that we can sometimes, and I can especially, sometimes contrast power with love, which is in a sense what Jesus is doing in this text also. The shepherd's not so much concerned with power as much as the shepherd is shaped by love. But here's the thing. Sometimes we can think of power and love somewhat as opposites so that love is powerlessness. Which is a challenge, especially in our kind of life and culture, where so many of us have been given positions of influence, that it's hard to know, how do I go powerless when I have influence? Like for me, I have influence with my children, I have influence with my students, I have influence with you as a congregation. What what does it mean then to kind of live love rather than power? I was having a conversation uh, just recently with Mike Lodal, and it really helped me and reminded me that love is not powerlessness so much as it is the use of power to empower the other. It is not so much the abandonment of power as it is the shepherd has power. In fact, the shepherd has power to make sure the wolf doesn't destroy the sheep. The shepherd has power to keep predators away. The shepherd has power to keep them coordinated, to pull them out of a ditch. But that power, Jesus says, is directed not back towards the shepherd, but that power is given in a way of empowerment of the other. So love is not so much powerlessness or giving up influence or giving up the kinds of ways that we get to shape communities, but it is a desire to use those gifts of influence that we've been given for the sake of the empowerment of the other. Are you with me? That was really good, by the way. Thanks, Mike Lodo. Secondly, it's not just a power that empowers, but the odd thing in the text, frankly, is we kind of expect Jesus to say, listen, I lay down my life. I I give that up for the sake of the sheep. But he's having this conversation about this beautiful flock that know each other and he they know Jesus, he knows them, and we're just this really cool community of sheep eh, hanging out. And it's quite pastoral, literally, pastoral. It's it's this beautiful picture of this community. And we're like, oh, I'm so into that. Let's be that kind of community. And they just, just, oh, and by the way, there are sheep that aren't here, there are other sheep. And I'm their shepherd too, and I've got to care about them too. And just about the time we're like, this is a cool community. He's like, oh, we got to go get others too. And so the good shepherd is not just empowering those in the shepherd's care, but is recognizing. There are others who are being mistreated, others on the margins, others who need to be part of this community, part of this flock, part of the care of the shepherd who aren't here. And so this flock doesn't only care for each other, but has kind of eyes to look up and see those who need to be included in it. Which, by the way, scholars wrestle with, who in the world are the other sheep Jesus is talking about? Are they Gentiles? Are they generations of people yet to come? Are they all the nations? Are they D, all of the above? Bing, bing, bing. (laughs) That's my answer. Yes. The others who need to be included. And so a good shepherd and a good shepherd community looks like those who care for each other, who live out influence in ways that empower other people but who are always looking for those sheep that need to be included. And then if we go to the Acts text, Peter essentially says, and good leadership looks like a recognition that God's spirit, that Christ's spirit is at work in our midst, and that spirit is doing good things in our midst, in particular transforming people, causing the blind to see, causing the lame to walk, but that is not necessarily something we can control. In fact, you could argue the whole book of Acts is about how, as I've said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is on the loose, and the Spirit of God is at work transforming communities, transforming people, and the church is just trying to keep up with what the Spirit of God is doing. But Peter is recognizing that Good Shepherd leadership looks like a willingness to participate in the ongoing work of the Spirit. Without the need to control that, but with the eyes to see that and the willingness to respond to that, even if it changes some of our status quo. So if you're still with me, or if I lost you somewhere there, jump back in. Good Shepherd leadership looks like a love that empowers and cares for one another. It looks like openness to the other. And it looks like the eyes and the ability to see the Spirit of God in, in our midst and not have to control that, but lean into that and allow it not only to change those the Spirit is changing, but allow it even to change us and break us of our tendency for security and the status quo. Pray with me? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. I have more. Um, so I want to talk to you just a little bit, uh, and I hope this doesn't just feel like kind of therapy, uh, self-therapy today. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about a kind of challenge that I feel both internally and externally. Um. This is kind of a fun week for us. Uh, Caleb is going to get ordained uh, this week, so Generation 4 of Messing Up the Church begins on Friday. Um, Every once in a while, I reflect on how different my grandfather's decades of ministry and my father's decades of ministry and mine now going on four decades of ministry, how similar they were and how different they were. Um, My grandfather's decades and era certainly faced a lot of challenges, a a transforming um, nation, all sorts of technological advances. That generation probably saw more advance in their lifetime than any any generation in human history. But for the most part, um, my grandfather pastored churches where People showed up because they were Nazarene or some other kind of Methodist tribe when they moved to town, and they showed up and went to the church of Nazarene because that's what we are, right? Hallelujah. And he kind of got to pastor people, and um, it wasn't really, it was really kind of late in my grandfather's ministry before he even had a church that had a church staff that he had to kind of think. I think um, there's a kind of myth in our family, I don't know if it's true or not, that my grandfather hired the first youth minister in the denomination. Um, We're just going to stick with that whether it's not true or not. Um, but it was very much a kind of, I would call it, a stable organism called the church. And Harold and Edith got to kind of live into that, um, invite people who maybe had lost touch with that to be revived and brought into that. And there were certainly challenges, especially lack of resource and so forth. But, but for the most part, there was a kind of stability. In my dad's ministry, there was a kind of transition that began And I think my three decades or so have been right in it. And it's a transition that's largely cultural, and that cultural transition is this, that we largely, almost everything in our life has been marketed at some level. And we have become deeply individualistic, and technology has changed a whole lot of things. And some of that's good, some of that's bad. But one of the ways that has changed ministry is, as I say to you so often, for most of us, even in this room or online, we think of the church not as something that we are, but as some place that we go. And that transition from something that we are, we're part of the church to, uh, I go to college church, or I go to first church, or I go to fill-in-the-blank church, that has changed an awful lot of the ways that we think, not only about what the church is, but what it means to be a good pastor, what it, le- what it means to lead a church well. And... Um, In some ways, those changes are embodied for me uh, in a couple of books. Uh, Early on, when it first came out, I've always been part of kind of pastoral leadership conversations and groups, and we were encouraged to read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And a lot of my kind of from seminary on has been shaped by a lot of leadership texts. And let me say, first of all, I think it's a really fine book, and there's a lot that I've learned from it. And if you're unfamiliar with it, where have you been? But here's the deal. Collins basically says, we can be a people who get caught by the good and fail to live into the great, especially organizations in the world. And in particular, the book became very popular among business leaders to say, I'm leading a corporation or I'm leading a business, and the last thing we want to do is settle for good when we could be great. Are you with me? And so, so much of what I feel like has shaped my conversation as a pastor and with other pastors and even in some ways shaping students who want to be ministers is shaped by the language of, let's not settle for good, let's be great. Another book and a conversation I had recently um, my startup podcast, mainly just to get to have conversations with some friends, Um, I had a conversation with a friend, uh, Scott McKnight, who he and his daughter wrote a book recently called A Church Called Tov, which again is that Hebrew word for Good. And I love it, I gotta get the title right. The title of the, the subtitle of the book is so good. A church called Tove, forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. Now, here's why this book has been important. Because in talking about a church called Good, in some ways, Scott and his daughter are, are talking about and have kind of lived in and out of some communities that you would, many of us would probably recognize and know as churches of significant size and influence. But what's interesting about the book is in my 30, uh, 30 years of ministry, the two or three churches that are talked about in the book are churches that I have looked at as the model for what, what do I want to be when I grow up, or what do we want to be when we grow up, or I go to pastor's conference, and that's what we want to be. And the book recognizes that part of what happened in the pursuit of greatness, a toxic culture began to sweep into that church, and none of those three churches are either exist or are existing the way that they were because they were pursuing a kind of greatness that actually turned out to not only destroy the church, but those leading the church. Are you with me? And so what happens? Part of what happens in our mindset is that the church ceases to become an organism, a living organism that Peter says is attached to the cornerstone, a living organism, a body that Paul calls a body, people who are connected to each other, who need each other, who, who are deeply Entwined in their lives and their care with one another. We move from being an organism to being an organization. Which again is not all bad. It's nice to have flowcharts. But when you become an organization, man, now all of it changes. We're no longer a kind of family inviting people to connect. Now we're we're much more like a business. Marketing Jesus, and so, man, I end up in meetings about mission statements and marketing and who are we trying to kind of reach, which, again, is not all bad, but it's a deep recognition that something deeply has changed about the ways that we think about not only what does it mean to be church, but what does it mean to be connected to each other, and that has deeply shaped then the way that we think about the role of shepherd or pastor or leader in a congregation. Um, unfortunately, in my 30 years, ministry has moved from uh, one, of my, one of my favorite books on ministry says, a pastor is like being invited to be the director of another family's family reunion. They haven't decided if you're family yet or not. Eventually, they might. But you're essentially there to help a family be a better family, That has moved from a kind of what I would call, it has moved from a calling to a career. And much of what has shaped both you and me is this sense that pastoring is a kind of career. My my dad, um, when he was a district superintendent, he used to drive boards crazy because he hated the language when a board would get together and say, we need to hire a new pastor. My dad would say, oh, no, 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 no. The church is a kind of organization, but we don't hire people, especially in pastoral worlds. We call them. They're called. It's why we're a weird organization. Because six years ago, you called us. Now you hired us too, but you called us, right? And for six years, we've been family together, and you're so good, you're so kind, gracious in the way that you treat us, and for the most part, you've loved us and welcomed us into your homes and lives, right? A few of you are still wondering, but you know, for the most part. And, and, and as a pastor, you're, the strange thing is you're not um, you're not numbers, you're people, right? People walking with God. And the odd thing is you're called, you're invited. And that's why I would say it's so hard when a church has to make a transition because it's not like a business that just fires somebody who's not working well. It's kind of breaking the fabric of community, which sometimes maybe must happen. But that's why in a church it's so difficult, right? But the challenge is, and it's a challenge for me as a pastor, I think about my career. Have you been good for my career? Am I doing the things that are moving me forward in my career of ministry? Which just totally changes, by the way, gets close to the language that Jesus used, uses when he says, the shepherd doesn't lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand doesn't. Because the hired hand goes, these aren't my sheep. This is just a job. Are there other openings available, right? And by the way, it's not just the way Pastors handle congregations the way congregations reflect on leadership. I say to the pastoral staff, and by the way, thank you for the way that you care for them. I say to them every year, we commit ourselves not to Hagar you, which I use that verb, I use her name as a verb. That Abraham and Sarah just needed her to have a baby. We're not an organization who just needs somebody to grow a youth group or to take care of the children. Or to get all the music to work right. We're a community who are led in some of those kinds of areas. But we do that not in ways that misuse each other, right? Or for you that don't just think about, am I getting the return on my investment? When we start thinking that way, um, we are no longer a living organism and we are no longer a community. We're, we're just simply of the business of Jesus. And once we kind of get there, we begin to be shaped sometimes by a kind of toxicity that fails to to discern that God is in our midst, transforming us. And we begin to believe that we are in control of this and therefore we can take credit for it. And if we just do the right things, the right outcomes will come. But the church, we are those people who are discerning where God is at work in our midst And being faithful to participate where God is at work in our midst. I'll stop talking about this, but I have to say it's it's really been a it's challenging for me Um, personally. I took the Strengths Finder, and this will shock you: achievers my top strength. I'm always kind of embarrassed about this one. I know you can send me an email; I'll get over it. Competitions in my top five. And because of that, it's easy for us, as we begin to think this way, to begin to think we're in competition with our neighbors, we're in competition with other denominations, we're in competition, I'm in competition with other pastors, right? And once we begin to think in those kinds of terms, um, we lose our connectedness. I, I grieve when I get together with some of my friends in large churches who, like so many lay people, are asking this question. In our connection with each other, what's the return on our investment coming? It starts to look like preparation for ministry shouldn't really be theological preparation. It should just be preparation and leadership like any old other organization. I could go on. But I want you to hear my heart this morning. A community that looks like the Good Shepherd learns to be connected to each other. And so I want to say uh, to some of you both, even online, but here, one of the nice things about being part of a large church is you can stay anonymous for a long time. But that's not really how the church is designed. God called us to be connected to each other. And that may mean... um, that you've got to make space for some folks in your life. Find ways to get connected, and we have to find ways of being connected to each other. Of course, a community that looks like the Good Shepherd is also always open to others. Um, It's fascinating um, getting to be both at Middleton this morning and here. Um, There's something, by the way, really unique about College Church Well, actually, that's a long list, Um, in good ways. I have never pastored a church with so many extended families here, which can be beautiful. It's beautiful to have generations worshiping together. Um, I've never pastored a church where people have lived here so long, right? This is a very stable community. There's a lot of newcomers. Hello. We're coming. Um, There's a lot of stability here, too. Because of our connection to the university, it's rare to find even a Nazarene church that is this Nazarene, right? A lot of us have history of connection, education, dorm stories that we don't tell on each other anymore, right? Um, And that can help lead to some of that connectedness. But it's interesting, even at Middleton, there's something I have to tell you so beautiful about that community that is small and they know each other. And by the way, when somebody's missing, you know it. And we track you down because there's something missing when you're not there. There's something so beautiful about that community, but the challenge of that kind of community, right, is just about the time you build that, you close it off. And so some of you have been reaping the benefits of a community of care for decades now, but it's also a community of care that has, has, has had walls that have not included others in. And so I just want to say, I'm excited about the renovation of this room um, this summer. But I want you to hear me say this. The renovation of this room is not an attempt for us to make our name great. All of the Tower of Babel. It is really an attempt to be hospitable. Right? I mean, when you have people over for dinner, I don't, I don't know how your house operates, but my wife's a crazy person. We have guests over, it's a solid two days in preparation. Because hospitality says we want, and especially in the church, we want to give our very best to God. But we also want, um, we want people who aren't family, who, who aren't used to all the stains and holes and things. We want to feel like we, we were ready for you, right? We want this place to be a place of warmth connection for you. But we especially want to be a community that recognizes where the Spirit of Christ is at work and discerns that and participates. And so I want to say this again as clearly as I can. I'm excited about this opportunity in Middleton. I think there's going to be opportunities for us in other places in the days to come. But again, that is not not a desire to make college church's name great in the valley. Oh, man, we want to tell the story of what God's doing here well, and please share your stories. Not for the sake of making a name that is great or advancing a career. It's because God is at work in this valley. Strangers are showing up moving near you and near us and all around. People who desperately need to be included in the flock. God's hand is at work making a new creation. Whoever is in Christ there is new creation. And so for some of you, the most exciting thing is going to happen because you're going to get involved in that and you're going to recognize, oh my word, I've been sitting in a pew for so long and the Spirit of God is at work here. And I now get to participate in that. It's a fine line between the pursuit of greatness that ends up losing goodness and a community that learns to live into Christ's goodness and allows, as God said to Abraham, I'll make your name great. Let me worry about that. You follow me. You become good and leave the rest of me. I've been teased um, a few years ago. I was asked to write a book on the beginning of ministry. And so they titled it The First Hundred Days. People have teased me, when are you going to write the last hundred days? <laughs> I have to say after my birthday this week. I can see it from here. I've got the outline in mind. Um. I've joked, no, my next book on church leadership is going to be From Great to Good. (laughs) How I gave up greatness in the pursuit of God's goodness. I don't know that I'll ever write it. But I do want to live that together as God's people. For we have a good shepherd who loves us And who pours out his power for the sake of us becoming what God intended us to become. And a good shepherd who has other sheep that need to be included. And a shepherd who is always on the move. That's the irony of that text. Is that we are connected to a cornerstone. And the cornerstone keeps moving. And inviting us to follow the Spirit into new places. May we reflect the goodness of God. God, help us today. Um, We invite you to help us become something that is kind of strange in our world today. Teach us to be less concerned about greatness. We'll leave that part to you. Teach us what it means to be good. Tove. Whole. At peace. A reflection of the shepherd who is good. Help me. Help the staff. In a world that tempts our imaginations to be shaped by various definitions of greatness. May our heart and our imaginations always be shaped by goodness. And in a world where we are all tempted to go pursuing organizations, even religious ones, that, that look great but lack Good. <laughs> because somehow that greatness will then kind of rub off on us. Help us to pursue being the people who are good and reflect the life of the Good Shepherd. For you are good. And we thank you today for your patience every time you pull, out, pull us out of that ditch and we run right back into it. Um, You're patient and merciful. And keep drawing us back to your good heart. And so make us a community that reflects the goodness of Christ today. Make us the body of Christ. Make us a living temple connected to the cornerstone that gives life but keeps moving us into new places. Make us not just an organization but a living body and organism filled with your spirit, reflecting your life, extending that life to others. For we pray this in Jesus' name.